Hello, I'm Hilary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today is Stefan Friedley, Red Team Tech Lead and Manager at Google. You can find Stefan on LinkedIn and on Twitter at STFN42. Welcome, Stefan. So happy to have you with us today. Thank you, Hilary. Uh, really nice to be here with you today. Yeah, likewise. And so, Stefan, to start off, before we get into the story that we invited you on to discuss, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess how you got into cybersecurity. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story, I guess. Yeah, I grew up in Switzerland in, in the 90s, which was a very different time in terms of technology, I guess, kind of the pre-iPhone era. And uh, my grandfather was an electrical engineer and pretty hands-on with a ton of gadgets around his house. And I really liked spending time there at an early age because he built a lot of custom model trains, which for some reason, 80-year-old me found to be pretty cool, I guess. So I, I got exposed to quite a lot of tech at, a, at an early age already. And that was always sort of fascinating to me to figure out how things work. And because of the way that I had been introduced to it through my grandfather, I was actually pretty convinced that taking things apart to figure out how they work was kind of normal, right? So me and my parents had a bunch of disagreements over the year when it came to that approach, but I think that's sort of what sparked or what, what set the initial spark. So any collateral damage aside, I somehow managed to convince my parents that we should get a dial-up modem when I was a teenager. And at that point, the whole new world opened up to me. I guess it sounds kind of trivial now today, but... I could sit in rural Switzerland and have suddenly access to all of that information and talk to people on the other side of the planet. And that was really fascinating to me. So it didn't really take long until I stumbled over some news groups and bulletin boards that were talking about tech more in depth and also about hacking and the concept of information security. And I think that was the point where I got really hooked. And that was probably the point where I slowly started to slide towards the industry or whatever it was back then because it it turned out that you could spend hours to figure out how something worked and then you could go a little bit further and sometimes you would find ways to make it do things that it was not supposed to do and that kind of blew my mind so i spent a lot of time reading frag magazine looking at stuff folks in the demo scene were doing switzerland had kind of an active demo scene at the time which was very cool and I asked like a really big load of really dumb questions, I guess, and never really stopped doing that. So when I was done with school, I got an entry-level job as a network engineer. And soon after, some of the folks that I had met on these online boards uh, started a company that offered penetration testing as a service to financial companies and were interested in taking me on because I seemed to be okay at breaking things. And yeah, that's that's sort of the story from it has been like almost two decades in offensive security since then. That's awesome. That's such a fun story. And um, I was a kid in the 90s as well. And model trains were such a big deal. <laughs> that was, they had know, such a right? moment. <laughs> um, that sounds really cool um, with your, your grandfather and everything. Yeah, it's actually it's actually really funny because my, my son is now getting to the same age and uh, I was at my parents' house and there's still some of that stuff around. And it turns out that all of these brands still exist and still seem to thrive. So I 
I, I kind of want to get back into it. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I have a son. He's very young right now, but I hope that he's into that when he's older. That'd be a lot of fun. He already likes to like take stuff apart. So I think he has a similar <laughs> uh, desire. <Early> yeah. Talent. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, Stefan, as I mentioned earlier, we, we invited you onto Cybercrime Radio after reading a, a recent article in ZDNet, which was titled or is titled Google's Hackers Inside the Cybersecurity Red Team That Keeps Google Safe. And the article went into detail about how you and the red team at Google get into the mindset of an adversary in order to find and fix any vulnerabilities that may exist before a, a cyber criminal finds them and potentially exploits them. And before we get deeper into how you and the red team work together, I guess, can you share with us what the threats landscape looks like for Google and all of the various products that Google has? You know, at the scale that Google serves users with, with billions of users in, in, in vastly different areas of the, of the world, there's such a wide variety of threats that we need to be aware of and that we need to defend against. And as a red team, our job is to help our security teams and our product teams to be prepared for the stuff that happens or the stuff that could happen right now, like the type of attacks that we actually do see in the wild. So it's kind of hard to pin that down without constantly watching that space, essentially. And since that's not really our mission, we rely heavily on our partners for that. So we partner very closely with our threat analysis group uh, led by Shane Huntley, and they do an excellent job at keeping tabs on threat actors in this like rapidly changing environment and to share that information with us so we can model the exercises that we want to run the scenarios that we think are relevant right now and have that influence the decisions that we make in terms of the attackers we simulate. Can you tell us more about your red team and how you work together and how you get into that mindset of the adversary? So we are one of the red teams at Google. We're probably the most traditional one in many ways uh, as we focus on digital threats. So the classic sort of hacker threat, I would say. And the way we operate is essentially, as already previously mentioned, we rely to a good chunk on the on the intelligence we get from TAC and other sources. And essentially, we try to figure out, okay, what type of attacker would attack Google today and how would they go about it? And once we have a picture of that or a rough idea or how we would imagine that, we essentially sit down and we sort of cosplay as adversaries, as we sometimes like to like to say, right? We we always have this double role where we at the same time Google engineers that want to make Google a, a safer place, but there is a part of our job that requires us to step out of that mindset and imagine being in the head of somebody who has very different motives, who wants to steal data, who wants to compromise users, who has vastly different morals from, from what we usually bring to the table. And I think we're just trying to figure out what the most pragmatic or the most valuable path would be for somebody to go about that. And then we try to simulate all those steps in order to see how fast could we respond to this? Are there things along this path that our teams can currently not detect that they should detect? And if that would be the case, how can we 
convey that information to the right places within Google so we can add visibility and essentially make sure that an adversary that would follow the same thought process, hopefully, would run into those new detections, those new uh, protection mechanisms. Excellent. And so you you mentioned, you know, having to cosplay as the adversary. And so I guess, what are some limitations that the team experiences, especially since you kind of have all that insider information and, and how do you progress past those? That's a good question, because it is a bit of a tricky territory when you mention things like insider knowledge, because it's very hard to fade that out mentally. There are things that you learn about an environment and it's a very conscious choice to then sort of toggle that off and be like, okay, we we don't necessarily know any of this depending on what type of attack, of attack we simulate. So that's sort of a, a tricky aspect of the role. And I think that also is something where we need to check ourselves so we don't actually use information that wouldn't be available to an adversary or at least simulate the process of acquiring that information in some shape or form before we jump to the actual execution of of an attack path. But on the topic of limitations, there is obviously the double role that I mentioned before that plays into that. So we don't actually want to harm Google, uh, quite the contrary. We want to make Google more secure for everyone. So we work with a fairly well-defined and strict set of rules of engagements, and we are sharing those very widely and openly across uh, stakeholders and partner teams. So it's very transparent what we can and we cannot do. And we define the guiding principles there, but also some more specific, finer details, I guess. The whole point of it is essentially to avoid bad surprises. I think we're still providing surprises every now and then, but we want them to be good surprises. We want people to be surprised that we found a an interesting or innovative way to make something happen that shouldn't happen, but we wanted to follow the rules to be set uh, up in advance. So some very strict tenets that we have are we don't access customer data, for example. We will never access data that belongs to a Google user. When we have exercises that target that type of data, we will set up specific test accounts that we can then target as a result of the exercise, but we wouldn't go about an exercise in a way where we compromise a random Google user that is not aware of that, obviously. Along the same lines, we often go to extra lengths to make sure that we don't accidentally access data that we're not allowed to access or that we are committed not to access. So more often than not, we will make sure that we understand all the risks that are involved with a specific attack path, even though it's probably a reality that an actual adversary would probably not care about that. So we spend probably more time in figuring those things out and making sure we stay within the limits of what is ethical than the threat actors that we simulate. That makes sense. And so, Stefan, what are some examples that you can share of perhaps vulnerabilities your team has found and rectified? Let me let me think about that. It's It's not quite so straightforward in a way because our mission is not really to find vulnerabilities, uh, even though that sounds a bit strange, I guess, and and sometimes causes a bit of surprise when when I say that. 
it's more of a secondary effect. Our primary mission is to allow detection and response teams within Google to react to the act of an attack, the specific parts of an attack in sequence, so to speak. And sometimes that involves a lot of exploitation, a lot of vulnerability research. Sometimes we target more the process level or we employ social engineering or phishing, more run-of-the-mill techniques, I would say. But it really depends. Across the technical side of things, I think we went through most of the common vulnerability types over the years in some shape or form, especially also when we're looking at uh, third-party software. That's a bit of a different challenge than we usually are facing because we are looking at it more from a black box perspective rather than the approach that we have within Google. And so I guess it really depends, but I think we cover a wide variety there. One interesting example maybe is when Log4J was a big topic last year, more or less around the same time of the year, I guess, as this episode, we actually suspended all of our exercises that were running at the same time because we wanted to make sure that we spent the resources to help Google address that vulnerability across the, the board. And some folks on the team actually found and reported the, some additional attack vectors in Log4J related components along that timeline. So that was sort of a memorable bug discovery that I think is also like safe to disclose here. Okay. Okay, great. And that's that's a helpful distinction as far as like the difference between like red teaming and maybe what someone might perceive it as like of a, a almost like a bug bounty. Like it's not the same thing. And so I guess I think that's really helpful for our audience. I know it's helpful for me to to hear you kind of clarify the the differences there. Yeah. I, I guess it's sort of a side effect also of, of Google's size, right? Because it's more than just offsec, both in terms of red teaming where you have other teams that do other flavors of, of adversarial simulations. But we also have teams like Vulnerability Rewards Program, for example, since you mentioned bug bounties, right? We, we have a fairly active intake of reports that uh, external researchers send to us through that program. And obviously, there's also Project Zero, and we definitely spend significantly less time finding cool zero-day vulnerabilities than Project Zero does. Okay, great. And so, Stefan, what excites you about the work that you and the and your Google Red team are doing right now or, you know, looking at doing in the future? I think first and foremost, I'm really grateful that I get to work with an incredible team of, of insanely smart people, both on my own team, but also in all the teams that we collaborate closely with, uh, including project teams, all the security teams. It's just a very broad and diverse range of folks that we get to work with and it's a very collaborative environment and i think that drives a lot of the motivation to do a good job and to keep pushing for new ideas as well in a way what drives me personally or always drove me personally to stay in this industry for such a long time as well is it's a constantly evolving set of puzzles. No two exercises that we do are the same. And, and for better or for worse, we are probably one of the very few teams at Google who consistently try to make their own lives harder. Uh, just because the stuff that we find usually gets fixed pretty quickly, which means that the next time we want to do something that is maybe similar or have a step in an exercise that requires the same piece of software to be targeted, 
we cannot just go back uh, and use the same vulnerabilities or the same techniques. We usually have to come up with new ideas. And I think that's challenging, but at the same time, it's also exciting because it keeps things fresh and it keeps things exciting for everyone. And last but not least, I think what is really cool for the team is just the scale and the impact that our work ends up having. It's such a large environment with a lot of different products that are being used by billions of users across the planet. So if our exercises can make Google's products safer, we end up making the internet a little bit of a safer place for a lot of people. And I think that resonates with all of us. My final question for you, Stefan, is kind of two parts. The, the first part, since you've been in this industry for a while and doing this this job for a while, you know, what opportunities do you think exist with red teaming for other companies within other industries? But then in addition, you know, what advice would you give anyone listening who wants to perhaps establish a red team or, or anything related? That's a great question. I think it differs a little bit uh, depending on what what the individual case looks like, obviously. But the guiding principle for any type of red teaming or adversarial simulations should be to take another point of view and to challenge assumptions that were made previously during maybe during design phases or implementation phases. I don't think red teaming is the most effective way way to find vulnerabilities or to find low-hanging fruit in terms of attack surface. I think it should really be a way to provide a level to, of assurance and to act as a sparring partner for a blue team where there's just a lot of collaboration opportunities by having a constant exchange of like, here is what we would do to avoid detection and learning how a blue team could react to that. So this cycle of, of mutual feedback can foster improvements on both sides in, on a very consistent basis. The caveat with that is that red teaming often gets perceived as as pretty, I guess, pretty cool in terms of like you get to hack things and like that sounds pretty fun. I tend to agree with that, but jumping into that space where you start to establish a red team without having a fairly mature security architecture and a fairly well-established defense in terms of the teams that are engaged with that, I think eliminates a lot of the benefits. I used to work in consulting for a long time before joining Google. And one of the patterns that led to a lot of frustration was demonstrating vulnerabilities in an environment where there's not necessarily resources available to fix those vulnerabilities uh, after the engagement is done. And I, I'm not sure if that's really helpful to everybody. So to get to your second question or to maybe summarize the for the second question, I think red teaming can be an, an extremely valuable tool in the toolbox of a security org when it can be ensured that the output is used in a productive and constructive way. Wonderful. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm sure our audience really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. So it's just so lovely speaking with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Hillary. I'm Hillary McClure, Vice President of Multimedia Productions at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Stefan Friedley, Red Team Tech Lead and Manager at Google. You can find Stefan on LinkedIn and on Twitter at STFN42. And for more episodes like these, you can visit us at cybercrime.radio. And for all of our media, you can visit us at cybercrimemagazine.com.